My daughter's turning six and she has requested a party themed with dragons and ninjas. I was freaking out about these themes, but now I can relax because I have ordered a themed birthday cake from a short and sweet bakery. It's a home-based bakery that makes delicious and beautiful cakes. Plus, she can customize any kind of artistry, no matter what your theme. If you're in the Southern California area, you have got to check out Short and Sweet Bakery at www.shortandsweetcakes.com. That's short and sweetcakes.com. Mom, mom, mama, what's Pantwise? So when do you want to go to sleep? None time. None time? Get out of my room! ParentWise is wildly honest and talk to real parents about real issues. Parents often have no place to go to figure out what to do and how to fix it. A community of parents who find solutions that work in the real world. The first step to fixing anything is understanding the why of it. Hi, I'm Carrie Jordan. And I'm Dr. B. And, and this, this is ParentWise. Just a few housekeeping items before we get started. To connect with other members of the ParentWise community, you can like us on Facebook and also follow us on Instagram. You can find us in both places by looking up ParentWise, which is P-A-R-E-N-T-W-H-Y-S. Also, please go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast, and it would be awesome if you would leave us a review. Last but not least, if you would like to get in touch with us, and we really hope that you will, please go to the website, parentwise.com, click on Contact Us, and shoot us an email from there. We would be so excited to hear from you, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Welcome to the first episode of ParentWise. Woohoo! Yeah. I know. <laughs> so exciting. Just a little bit about the episode that you are about to hear. The first couple of episodes are really going to be geared towards getting to know us a little bit better, kind of where we come from, our general beliefs about parenting, also the basics on the parenting techniques that we're going to be talking about throughout the rest of the podcast. After our first two episodes, then we are going to kind of go to our regular format. Mm -hmm. Our regular format will involve interviewing parents about their children, discussing issues that they're having at home. Most are things that we've all experienced as parents, or if you have a baby or you're pregnant, you have to look forward to in the future. <laughs> so congratulations. So we'll be doing an interview with parents and then giving them advice about what we think will help the situation. The second part of the episode will be follow-up from a previous family that we've interviewed. So you will be able to hear, how did it work? Did it work at all? And if not, what do we think is the reason? So to me, what's always been missing in most of these parenting things is that you always hear the advice, but you never hear what happened afterwards right? and what worked. And maybe if it didn't, why it didn't, you know? Right. And what right. to try next. It's very important to understand there are lots of ways to get where we're going with our children. Right. And one of the things in listening to this program should give you an idea of the wide variety of things you can do with your children to help them grow and be happy, healthy, productive kids. Exactly. And adults. And adults. Future adults. So that will be our standard episode structure. 
And then every once in a while, we'll do bonus episodes. Right. I think it's really important to, for example, know from an expert, when is it appropriate to expect your child to be tested if they're having struggles in school? Mm -hmm. And how do you go about that process? To learn a little bit about the process of getting an IEP if one needs one, or alternative ways of helping our children when they're struggling in school. Also, a lot of times people come to me and say, how do I know if my child needs medication? And there are a lot of myths about medication. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to interview people who can clarify those ideas and maybe cut through some of the myths. The best parent is an educated parent, somebody who has some information and knows how to apply it, use it. And it's especially important to have a place where you can go and ask your questions and have somebody come up with an answer. Are you saying they should have a place to go for their parent-wise? <laughs> yes, indeed. Interesting, indeed. indeed. Okay. You're pretty good off the cuff. You know? I am. I do what I can. Um, <laughs> sometimes not as much, which everyone will find out. So thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoy episode one of Parent-Wise. Hello. Hey. Uh, good to have you here, Mom. Always good to be with my daughter. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about why you wanted to do this podcast. Well, I've been a therapist for so very many years. And over the time that I've been a therapist, I've worked individually, I've worked in groups, and I've given lectures. And I always get this feedback from parents that they wish they had learned the tools that I gave them earlier. They often say, I wonder how different things would have been, both in my marriage, but also with my children, if I had known this and implemented these tools. Mm -hmm. And so for years, I've been racking my brains trying to figure out, how do I get this information out there? And I had a variety of ideas. But when podcasts came along, that just started to feel right to me. And I thought, I do reasonably well talking. What do you mean by you do reasonably well <laughs> talking? What does that mean? <laughs> Please elaborate. It's easier for me to talk about something than to write about it. Ah, yes. Which is indeed. Not I see what you're saying. You have what they call the gift of gab. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I, too, have the gift of gab, as you know. Podcasts just felt right. And my hope was to reach as many parents as possible. And the thing that's daunting about all of this is that, of course, once you're a parent of a newborn, you are a parent forever. And children have different needs at different ages. And so it's not as if I can give one piece of advice that works the entire length of that child's childhood or even young adulthood. So it really requires asking a lot of questions, looking at how we change and morph as parents, so I thought it would be great if we could interview parents and problem solve and then begin to develop a set of archives so that people down the line can say, ah, I'm having temper tantrums. And they can go to the website and look up a long list of ideas and concepts that are usable, teachable, relatable, and definitely workable. What made you decide to ask me to be your co-host? There were a lot of factors that went into it. 
not the least of which is that you're an amazing and remarkable mom of two yourself and are in the throes of raising two really great kids. More importantly, you were raised by these methods and have memory of what it was like to have me use these methods with you so you can speak to your experience of being on the receiving end of these parenting experiences. Also, I think you don't take everything for granted. You have come up with ideas on your own, like your long game parenting, and those ideas fit very neatly in this Adlerian philosophy and take the ideas and the notions of parenting to a very new level, making it very relevant in this day and age. And although I don't always agree, it's good to have that debate. And I think it reminds people that there's more than one way to effectively parent children. So I am excited to have you as a co-host, not to mention the fact that you're funnier than I am and tell better jokes than I do. (laughs) And I love your irreverence. When I asked you to do the podcast, why did you say yes? And you know this, I've been interested in parenting for much longer than I've been a parent. And I think that stems from, you know, being raised by you and dad, who was also a therapist, my stepmother, who was also a therapist. Yeah, I know. I know. It explains a lot. I noticed at a really young age that you guys were different with me than my friend's parents were with them. And I guess just having that awareness made me notice the results of those parenting decisions on my friends, how they responded to the different ways that their parents parented them, and, you know, eventually who they ended up becoming. Because I'm still friends with the majority of people that I was connected with when we were young. So the interest really started in childhood, and it went from there. So I was a nanny for um, a girl with pretty severe behavioral issues um, and her little brother who had autism. I was 19 when I did that, and the relationship I was able to build with both kids, particularly the daughter, using the techniques that you used with me was remarkable and amazing to me that I could just turn around and do what you guys had done with me and get these consistent results. I nannied for other children throughout my life. I was in two relationships that had children involved, the second of which I played a pretty big part in raising him for the first four or five years of his life. When I was 30, One of my cousins, a teenage cousin, was sent to live with me, and that was one of the most eye-opening, life-changing events that I've ever had. And I was usually the first one that all of my friends called to take care of their kids. So I just always had an opinion about it, which, of course, I was always willing to share with someone. And everyone loves to hear parenting advice from someone who's not a parent. (laughs) They Uh, love it. Not. Absolutely not. But I somehow felt compelled, not out of judgment at all, but just out of a passionate feeling of the difference that small parenting changes can make for the child and for the parent, for that matter. So throughout my adult life, I've developed some concepts and ideas about parenting that I've begun to call long game parenting. We will have a bonus episode dedicated to these ideas 
But for now, I just wanted to kind of mention it as one of the reasons that I decided to be a part of this podcast. I really wanted the opportunity to voice my views and my opinions and also allow them to evolve as we go on this journey about really focusing on adulthood as our it's something that we keep in the framework, in the background all of the time. Because I just don't think we do that enough. We aren't paying attention to the big picture enough. And when we keep that in mind in most things that we do, it really does change the way we feel about our parenting. It takes you out of it a little bit, which is nice. Like emotionally, because you have this other framework you're kind of concentrating on. And when you think about it, most of our lives are spent as adults. And so shouldn't we spend the time that we have with our kids preparing them. You know, I mean, it just makes sense to me. So I got together with my husband, Pasha, at the age of 38, I think. And we were married when I was 40. And I had already told him that I wasn't really interested in having, I don't know, what's the word? You didn't want to have biological children. Yeah, I didn't want to conceive and to be pregnant and go through all of that. And I also have loved so many kids in my life so much. I can't imagine loving some of these kids more than I did, even if they looked like me or smelled like me or whatever a biological child (laughs) does. And because I had had that experience, I thought I should just adopt. So that's what we did. And just to kind of keep my children's privacy, I I will not be talking about how they came to be with us and, and the challenges that we face and are continuing to face with that. So my older daughter is about to turn six and her nickname is Rue. So I'll be referring to her as Rue. And my little one who turns one tomorrow is Monkey or Monks. I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, but that kid acts like a monkey, man. She's just, she she makes noises like a monkey. She's just basically a monkey. She's a nut, man. And she's really different from how her sister was when she was little. I believe that parenting basically shapes a child, but they are in essence who they are. And you have the ability to create roads for them to kind of move them in this direction or that direction and how to manage themselves, manage their life, manage their feelings, but that the essence of who they are comes from them. Well, and I think this kind of gets into the next thing, which is the goals of parenting. If we assume the children come in a certain way with certain capacities and certain attributes, is it realistic to think we can get them to all be the same way or even to be the way we would like them to be? Well, no, but I do believe that there are things that you can do to create the best results possible, but none of it is guaranteed. I mean, parenting is a soft science and there's a million different ways to skin a cat, which is a really disgusting way of saying there's a million (laughs) different ways to skin a kid. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No. There it is, folks. No, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Well, you can often get the result by forcing or coercing or punishing a child. But the question is, what other damage happens in the process? Exactly. Parenting is really hard when you are parenting to try and create a great adult a great person and not just immediate success for whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. So I want them to stop this behavior. So I'm going to do A, B, and C to stop. Okay, maybe it works, but 
did you think about how that will help them develop into a happy, healthy adult with good coping skills who knows how to struggle through the challenges of life without completely falling apart or turning to drugs or alcohol or sex with random strangers or whatever it is that they're going to turn to. Food, that's my favorite. Right. (laughs) Resilience is one of the words I like to use. It's so important for children to develop resilience. And in good parenting, we are able to raise resilient children, children who may be upset or disappointed, but they bounce back, they come back, they try more. And a lot of that has to do with the way in which we frame our consequences, the way in which we handle the discipline that they need. And in that long range, thinking in terms of helping them to understand that everything that happens has a logic to it. And very often the problem parents have is that parents don't understand the logic of parenting. They've been parented. And I once gave a class and I said, I used to ask people, how many of you have had tonsillectomies? And three quarters of the class would raise their hand. And I'd say, okay, how many of you feel qualified to do a tonsillectomy? And they'd all laugh at me. Well, so many of us go into parenting thinking, well, you know, I had a good childhood. You know, that should be enough. I, I, I did okay. So since I did okay, I should be able to do okay as a parent. But it is that same parallel, which is that, you know, being parented and growing up as an adult, if you like the way you were parented, does not necessarily mean that you will be a good parent. Because being a good parent really means understanding what you're doing and why, and having some logic to everything you do with your child. Yeah, and I think that lends itself to the title of our podcast, Parent Wise. Why do they do what they do? Why are you going to do what you're going to do? And what are the general effects of these kinds of, you know, choices that we make? So one thing I wanted to see if we could talk about, and I know it's just such an important framework for people to understand before we get into the interview aspects and kind of some of the other things that we're going to be doing later is what your foundation is with regard to psychology and parenting. And, you know, why have you chosen to follow that parenting path, psychological path? Are you talking about my qualifications? No, no. Everyone knows you're qualified. (laughs) You just look qualified. Um, 40 years as a therapist, but more than 40 years. Oh, yeah. Way more, Mom, actually. (laughs) If I'm 46 and you were a therapist before me, then you should say 50 plus years. I know. Hmm. Do you have to change your bio? Anyway, so more the concepts. I think that everybody kind of has this idea of kind of a a structure that they use for parenting. I know there's, um, you know, attachment parenting, there's rye parenting, and then there's conscious discipline. Oh, between parent and child, Chaim, people used to say ganat. I always, it's French. Genot is how I used to say it. That was one of the big ones when I was pregnant with you. I mean, you name it, they have a bunch of different names for all of these different parenting techniques. So tell me about yours, where you got those techniques and why you find them valuable? Well, it starts way, way back when I was a little girl. I'm the oldest of seven. When I was getting ready to go to preschool, evidently I gave my parents a really hard time. I would cry all the time. I didn't want to go. 
And they were at their wits' ends, and so they started asking around. And at the time, someone referred them to an ongoing series of lectures given by a Dr. Rudolf Dreikers. Rudolf Dreikers was the student of Alfred Adler. Old man Adler's kid. (laughs) Yeah, old man Adler's kid. (laughs) So basically, they began studying with Dreikers, and they learned what is known as Adlerian psychology. And Dreikers took all the Adlerian material and made it relevant and usable for parents. And just in a synopsis, Adlerian psychology is the psychology that talks about inferiority complex, talks about birth order, talks about goal-directed behavior, which means that he actually was the first one to develop concepts about parenting related to behavioral change, kind of that Pavlovian stuff that they did with dogs. Well done, Yes, yes. Way ahead of his time. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why very few people knew about Adler's, because his stuff was so hands-on and so practical, it wasn't sort of esoteric enough and highfalutin enough to be considered. It didn't involve doing copious amounts of cocaine and wanting to sleep with your father? No, no. That's disappointing. (laughs) Or was it sleep with your mother? Sleep with your mother. Oh, sorry, Mom, not interested. I mean, you're you're hot, don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to sleep with Dad either, so if that makes you feel any better. (laughs) All right, so back to the topic. He, Dreikers came up with something that was called the four goals of misbehavior, which also later was morphed into the four goals of positive behavior. And it's a structure through which we begin to look at children's behavior and understand why they misbehave. And it's really important to understand why children misbehave, because if we don't understand why they misbehave, then we have no idea how to correct it. Because misbehavior has to do with dealing with a child's needs. Misbehavior, understanding misbehavior, is the key to figuring out what our children need. Mm. So if we can figure out what they need, then we can craft a solution that works in the moment and moves a child forward in a positive way, in a socially appropriate way. One last concept that I wanted to mention about Adler is that he was one of the only therapists of his time, and actually for much longer after that, that talked about psychological health. And it's an interesting concept. He talked about social interest, and he said a person is as healthy as their ability to connect with others and to help others, and that that was the measure of a person's psychological well-being. And he called it social interest. So what I like to do is I like to teach people what these four goals of misbehavior are so that they can begin to identify what's going on with their children. Once you know what the child is feeling and needing, then we know what to do, one, to correct the misbehavior, but two, to help that child remedy those those things that they're feeling in negative ways. Gotcha. Do you have children who struggle with math? Do you struggle helping your children with math? If so, we have a great series of books written by Danica McClellar. She has written books for children between the ages of preschool and college, and I think you'll find them truly helpful. You can find this and other resources by going to our website, parentwise.com, our picks. So what are the four, I mean, 
We're really building up to this. What are the four goals of misbehavior? Okay. So if we start with the one that is most known, and most people will say this a lot, it's attention getting. Most people will look at all kinds of misbehavior and say, oh, they're just wanting attention. So the way I like to do it, I like to give one example and show you how one example of behavior can be any one of the first three goals of misbehavior. So we're going to talk about Susie jumping on the couch. Fucking Susie. That <laughs> little brat. So Susie knows she's not supposed to be jumping on the couch. So you say to Susie, Susie, please stop jumping on the couch. You know we don't do that in our home. So what you've just done is you've corrected the child. That's step number one. There are only two steps a parent needs to do in order to identify a goal. The first one is to correct the misbehavior by asking a child to stop. The second one is to pay attention to how you're feeling. You're feeling as a parent? As a parent, yes. So your feelings will guide you to understanding what's going on with the child. So when you ask Susie to stop jumping on the couch, if when you correct her behavior, she stops, what you have is attention-getting behavior because she accomplished her goal. You're paying attention to her, so she stopped. Now, attention-getting behavior is... Very interesting because one time is generally not enough. And with misbehavior, it seems to repeat itself. It's kind of like that fly that keeps landing on your hand that you want to shoo off. And then it lands again and you shoo it off. So Susie may then stand on the coffee table or she may climb on the counter in the kitchen. And you're having to say, we don't do that. Get down. We don't do that. And each time she cooperates. So she's cooperating. She's just going and then finding another way to gain your attention. Exactly. So if that were to happen to you, how would you feel? That would definitely be annoying. And is annoying, by the way, when it happens to me, which it does. (laughs) Happens to all parents. And so one of the things we want to pay attention to is that if you look at the parallel of this, attention getting is not necessarily a negative thing. We want our children to have attention. We just don't want them to get it by misbehavior. So I'm going to sort of flip into the four positive goals, and we'll do them together as we go along. So we're saying that negative attention getting isn't good, but when a child gets negative attention, it generally means they're not getting enough attention in a positive way. And there are lots of ways a child can get attention in a positive way. Can you think of any? Um, Being helpful, you know, offering to help. Sometimes just staying out of my way while I'm trying to finish something is very helpful. If I say, sweetie, I need just five, 10 minutes to finish what I'm doing. And when she goes, okay, and goes into her room, just plays and, you know, until I come and get her, that's probably the most helpful thing she could possibly do. Right. And she won't know that it's helpful until when it's over, you go to her and you say, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And you've just now given her exactly what she needs, which is attention for doing something that was really right and really helpful. So we always have to keep in mind that that positive side needs to be attended to. So we would say that when we correct a child's misbehavior and the child cooperates, And when we pay attention to our feelings, we're annoyed or frustrated. That means we have an attention-getting child. Now, interesting. Susie's jumping up and down on the couch. Same child, same couch. And we say, Susie, stop jumping on the couch. Now, 
if Susie does not stop jumping on the couch, she's reacted differently. She no longer is cooperating. That means the goal's not the same. So it's not attention getting. It is not attention because you, getting. She has your attention, but that hasn't stopped. Hasn't behavior. stopped her. Okay, okay, gotcha. So, so what happens here is you might say to her, Susie, I said, stop jumping on the couch. Now she can do her response of not cooperating can happen in one of two ways. She can actively say to you. She can turn to you and say no and continue jumping. That's what we would call. A way to get in a lot of trouble in my house? (laughs) Yeah. Girl, did you just say no? You did not just say no. Yes, she did. (laughs) Or or she can just pretend that she didn't hear you. Mind you, you're just standing two feet away. She's made eye contact. Yeah, she's just ignoring you. But the key here is when you correct the misbehavior and the child doesn't cooperate, we no longer have attention getting. What we have here is power. We have a child here who is saying, I'm going to prove that I'm more powerful than you. Right. I'm in control. That's exactly. I'm in control. Now, I want you to remember that being powerful is not a negative. So here again, we're flipping into the positive goal of behavior, which is we want our children to feel powerful. We want our children to feel as if they can accomplish things, be in charge, be a leader. Those are all really good things. But... When a child chooses a negative way to be in charge, it creates havoc at home. And it makes you resentful. Resentful. I become angry and resentful, and then I want to exert my control, and that never is a good thing. Right. So what we have is what we call a power contest. Right. Because what that does, child tells us no, we go, what do you mean no? Right, like what I just did. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so... What happens is when you correct the child and the child doesn't cooperate and you feel angry, those are your two cues that you have a child who's involved in power behavior. And so what it means is we will have to consequence that behavior, but we also have to pay attention to the fact that there is a lack in that child's life. They don't know how to get positive power. And that means we have to work on that as a parent. So now we have Susie jumping up and down on the couch. Jesus. She's got a lot of energy. (laughs) Yes. So we say, Susie, get down off the couch. Not only does she not cooperate, but her behavior gets worse. She could throw something at you. Mm. She she could call you names. She could spit at you. I remember. (laughs) Who is this child? (laughs) Yes. Was David like that? Because I know I was not like that. I was David's favorite thing. Beautiful, picture perfect. If he got into this place, and it wasn't often, but the couple of times it was so amazing because he turned to me and he looked at me and he said, I hate you, you're ugly. (laughs) All in one breath. I love that. (laughs) I hate you, you're ugly. So basically, we have here a child who feels like they're entitled to get even. And that's why they escalate their behavior. That's why the behavior gets worse. And often this behavior results from our trying to force a child to do what we want them to do. So if, let's just say, for instance, last week, Susie was jumping on the couch and we pulled her off the couch and spanked her, that might result in her feeling like it was her turn to get even Mm -hmm. and she might do it again and then try and escalate. 
Okay, so this is an escalating form of misbehavior that usually comes from when we attempt to power our child into some sort of behavior. They feel entitled to get revenge. So when we have a child who doesn't cooperate and the behavior escalates and we feel hurt, we know the child is into revenge behavior. Now, someone would say to me, what is the flip positive side of revenge behavior? And I would tell you that it's a feeling of justice and fairness that a child in a positive way wants to make sure that things are even and that everybody gets their part and has their place. And so what's so interesting is they've done a study and they found that middle children are in larger numbers in the field of umpires, referees, lawyers, and judges. Mm. And these are all people who grew up feeling like somehow life was unfair. And one of the ways they subconsciously dealt with it was to go into a field that allowed them to, say, be a mediator or to referee and decide. They get to decide what's Exactly. Exactly. So those are the first three goals of misbehavior and positive behavior. The fourth goal of misbehavior sounds sort of innocuous, and most parents have experienced it. But if it carries on for a long time, it actually is probably the most difficult. The fourth goal is called a display of inadequacy. And please remember I said the word display. Children will display inadequacy in order to engage us, to get us involved with them. And they do this because if they're really good at it, they can get us to do a lot of things for them that they don't want to have to try or do for themselves. And when a child does this, they are not jumping up and down on the couch. So it's not very obvious. They're not doing something that waves a flag, like jumping up and down on the couch. What they're doing is more like they're saying things like, I can't, I can't tie my shoes. I don't know how. Help me get dressed. And it's constant. It's constant. And it goes far beyond a young child who's just learning and really can't. This happens to children who go to school and they bring their homework home. And you know they've learned this at school and they don't want to do their homework. And so they display inadequacy in order to get you to sit down with them and do their homework basically for them. Right. And the problem is, even though they are subconsciously displaying inadequacy because it works, it's goal-directed behavior, they want us to sit down and they can get us to do that, eventually what happens is that they begin to buy their own Kool-Aid. Right. And they begin to feel inadequate because what they see is... She was. Well, our parents, the parents basically are saying, oh, yes, you are inadequate, and I'm going to do this for you. They, they play into it. I mean, I would imagine that then the child feels like, oh, I guess I really can't do this. Right. And it's very simple things. Like, for instance, children are wonderful observers of things. And I'll, you'll hear me say this a lot. They observe everything. But their interpretation of things is often highly skewed. For instance, you're rushing to get out of the the house in the morning to get your child to school and to get to work on time. And your child is just learning to tie their shoes. And so instead of starting a little bit early and letting them struggle with the shoelaces, instead you pop them up on the the couch and you, you put their shoes on, you tie their shoelaces, and off we go. And children 
look at that and they say, hmm, I guess mommy did that because they don't think I can do it myself. And it's a very discouraging thing when you do something for a child that the child can do for themselves. You basically eliminate their opportunity to feel good about something they've accomplished. Right. And there are a lot of those kids who are like, I can do it myself. Let me do it. I can do it. And what's funny, this obviously triggers a lot with me. So, you know, Rue has some learning disorders and, and things that she's struggling with with school. And there's a lot of, I can't, I can't, I can't. And please, you know, I need help. And with schoolwork, we've gotten pretty good at handling that. So we'll sit down with her. One of us will sit down with her. And when she does that, I said, hey, I'll sit here for support and we can talk about it. But I won't do any of it for her. And then she just whines and whines. And I'm like, look, you know, this can take as long as you want. I love sitting and relaxing. In fact, I might read a book while you are sitting here. But we aren't getting up until this is done. So you should just make a choice based on that, what it is you want to do. And the same thing with puzzles. Remember, she was she wouldn't do puzzles. She's like, I can't do puzzles. I'm, you know, it, that's something that's important. I tried to I explained to her that it develops certain parts of her brain and blah blah blah. And we would do it, and she just like literally like flop on the floor. This is a sixteen piece puzzle, and she's like <laughs> carrying on like I'm asking her to dig a ditch or something. I mean, it, or like do some sort of calculus. And I just laid down on the floor in a room and was like, carry on, my friend. You tell me when you're done and want to do the puzzle. I have that level of patience, a.k.a. laziness. And I'm fascinated by how she behaves in this way because it's so extreme. And so I kind of don't really mind just sitting back and watching. I'm fascinated by it. So good at that. However, we still, I won't speak as much for my husband, but although he also does this, we still get her dressed most of the time. Not completely dressed, but she still, you know, doesn't think she can really handle shirts very well, unless she's in a mood where she's like, look, I can put it on. And we just reflexively help her get dressed. And then it was kind of even brought to my attention last night because she came into the kitchen and we were at my sister-in-law's house and she came into the kitchen. She said, mom, you know, I can't, and, you know, the little whiny voice that I don't listen to. I'm like, I can't, I don't understand you when you talk to me like that. I need help, you know, with my shirt, blah, blah, blah. So I'm about to try and help her, but I'm holding monkey. I'm holding the little monks. And so my sister-in-law says, sweetie, you're almost six years old. I know you can do this on your own. So why don't you go give it a try? And I was like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, she has a very valid point. I just didn't think about it. Do you know what I mean? I just didn't think about it. And so it was just one of those ones that was under the radar for me. And I always figured, you know, like, she's, you know, I'm not going to be getting her dress for high school. At some point, <laughs> she's going to take this over, right? And that's true. But at the same time, I'd like to be more of an encourager of her doing it herself. So one of the things I've been thinking about is instead of just pulling the plug altogether as saying, you have a choice. I can either help you get dressed for school or undressed and into your pajamas. So one time a day, I will help you. You decide what time, which one you want help with. And just as a way of showing her that I know she can do it, but that I'm also, that I'm not going to forcibly take that piece of attention that she gets from me away or from my husband away. So... I think I'm going to do that, and I, and I suspect that once we 
kind of do that, she'll start just kind of doing it on her own. Well, and the other thing that's important to remember is that when that happens, Mm -hmm. you have to remember to look at her and say, wow, you did a great job. Look at that. It only took you, you know, a minute to get that shirt on. You're <laughs> Ten really- minutes to get that shirt on. I swear, it's like watching two cats wrestle in a bag. It's hilarious. Um, but really, I mean, most some of it's just show. I mean, is kids are just, they're just amazing in their ability to put on, like, they <laughs> should win Oscars the, with this behavior, this exaggerated behavior. It cracks me up. And you know her, man. Oh, that yeah. Rue, she is all over it. She's dramatic. <laughs> anyway, that just sprung to mind in this display of inadequacy because in this one way, I feel like we really have a handle on it and we really focus on it and we're very diligent. And then in this other way, I <laughs> totally, like, wasn't paying attention and didn't even really realize that I was hindering that right, and kind of playing into the right. inadequacy. And, and the danger in this is that we inadvertently can send the message that they are not capable and they're not adequate. And so, again, the last goal of positive behavior is a sense of adequacy and competence. And that's very easily given when we see them do something that's right, when they pick up something and throw it in the trash. And you say, that was so helpful. Thank you so much. When they help us set the table, when they help us take the garbage out, when they get themselves dressed at the beginning to say, you did such a good job on that. And you couldn't do that a week ago to help them see the progress in their development. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in your case, you'll be able to say, look at Monkey, she can't do that. It's going to be a long time before Monkey can do that the way you do. Right. So that she begins to understand that it's a progress. It's a progression of things. Right. When you're a baby, you can't do anything. And every time, every day, you can do a little bit more and a little bit more. Exactly. Ah, yeah. Exactly. So... The thing that's important to remember is you now have a sense of, oh, I forgot to talk. Yeah, what's the feeling? The feeling, often we end up feeling helpless. Mm. We think, are they ever going to learn to get dressed? Are they ever going to learn to tie their shoes? Will they ever learn to add, subtract, multiply, whatever it is? And we end up having this sense of overwhelming feeling like they're never going to learn what it is they need to learn. They're never going to do what we need them to do. Which means they're never going to move out, and then we'll never have peace and quiet again, <laughs> and our lives are ruined. Exactly. So it's a deep, deep feeling of hopelessness. Well, and it's just, it, the thing is, once we start to feel that way, they pick it up, and they begin to think of it as, if mom feels that way, it must be true. Right. So we have to really be very careful. And the reason I say this is the worst one, the most serious one, is it's the hardest one. As a therapist and clinician, when I get a youngster who comes in who's acting out, I'd much prefer the youngster who's acting out with power and attention getting or even revenge to a child who has really settled into feeling that they're not capable of doing anything. It's much harder to get a child out of that concept of themselves as incapable than it is to help a child undo that sense of inappropriateness with power or revenge. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. So we've talked about the four goals of misbehavior. We've touched a little bit on the four goals of positive behavior. If we're going to sum this all up, what is the most important thing for parents to take away from all the things that we talked about? I think it's important for parents not to think that 
what we're trying to do is just identify misbehaviors and figure out how to fix them. Children misbehave because there's something going on that they need in their life. And the reason it's important to pay attention to the four goals of positive behavior is because usually if we identify a child misbehaving with attention getting, for example, it means that they don't have the skills or understanding or ability to find that attention in a positive way. And that means that we as parents have to change our behavior as well. We have to be thinking, okay, if my child is misbehaving for this reason, what can I help them learn? What skills can I teach them? What opportunities can I give them so that they can begin to develop these skills so that they can get the attention getting in a positive way, so that they can have a sense of power and competence, so that they can feel like they can equalize things when life is really unfair and they can survive that, and so that ultimately they can have a sense of competence. So this is not just about figuring out why children misbehave. This is also about once you figure out why a child misbehaves, what do you do about that? And There are a lot of things that you can do about it, and we will be talking about them with each family as they come up, because there are many ways to do that with each child. So it's not just about the discipline and coaching used to stop the behavior. It's also about filling the void that caused the behavior in the first place, whatever that void is. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good. So the thing I want to do next, and I think we're going to address it in the next episode, is to talk about once we know what the misbehavior is, what are we going to do about it? And so I am going to give you a system that is going to make a huge difference because it's a system that's based on reality. It's based on the real world, and it doesn't involve yelling, screaming, forcing. It is logical, and once you get the rhythm of it, you will wonder why you never figured this out before. It will take your parenting from wherever you are to a whole different level. I'm familiar with these systems because you used them on me. Yes, indeed. Yes. No, but you were, yeah, everybody's parents generally were known for different things, you know? One of my friend's parents was a little slap happy. One of them was so protective. Like, she didn't care if you, you know, you could smoke crack in the house as long as you did it in the house where she was so she knew that you'd be okay. You know, or if she could control that. She was really interesting. And then there was you who totally did things so differently from everybody else that that you you left quite an impression, especially with your ideas on child labor. <laughs> Vacuuming of stairs, washing of windows, things like that. Uh, quite the taskmaster. Oh, my goodness. So in our next session, we'll get into logical, natural consequences, so how to handle misbehavior. All right. It was great talking to you, Mom. (laughs) Always good. Always. We really appreciate your comments and your feedback. You'll be able to do that by leaving comments and questions and suggestions on our Facebook page. Also, if you'd like to connect with others in our community, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. We would appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, subscribe to our podcast, and leave a review. You can get a summary of our key takeaways from this episode on our website. That's parentwhys.com. Finally, if you would like to be interviewed, write us explaining your issue, and we will do our best to get back to all of you.
Join us for episode two of ParentWise, where we talk more about how to create great consequences for your kids to help correct their misbehavior. People will say things to their children like, okay, if you don't do this, no more bicycle. It's not related at all to the misbehavior. Right. A popular one is to take away video games. If the video games don't have anything to do with the misbehavior, they haven't interrupted, intervened in any way, it's not logically connected. And that turns it into a punishment. And again, it's a way of saying, I know you love this and you can't have it anymore because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. It teaches might makes right. Again, we're not after that.